0: Welcome to the Quality Meat Scotland podcast. Industry updates and best practice to promote, support, develop and protect the Scottish red meat sector.
1: Hello and thank you very much for choosing to listen to this. I'm Mark Stephen. Once upon a time farmers had to produce food and that was more or less it. Everything else was a consequence of that one activity. But nowadays, society, and in particular politicians, seem to want farmers to deliver wider environmental and public goods. And that means doing things differently, trying out new ideas, sharing best practice, which is what the Monitor Farm project has really been all about. The Monitor Farm Scotland initiative, to give it its proper name, is managed by Quality Meat Scotland and AHDB cereals with funding from the Scottish Government. The Monitor Farm Legacy Initiative aims to provide host farmers and community groups with an opportunity to review projects that have been running for a while. In this podcast series, we're going to be speaking to six legacy farmers, looking at their ongoing projects and examining the benefits those projects have had for both their businesses and for local communities. Hugh Broad has Woodhead Farm in East Lothian. Hugh is one of the first Monitor farmers in Scotland. He's a progressive arable farmer who's worked hard to deliver environmental goods whilst also improving his yields. Bill Gray has been the farm manager at Preston Hall Estate for over 25 years. Preston Hall sits between Edinburgh and the Lammermuirs and has about 1,200 acres of arable land. During the Monitor farm process, it was linked with a livestock unit, a Sochland farm, with some very interesting results. And Hugh and Bill both join me now. Good morning, how are you? Good morning, Mark. We're fine. morning, Mark. I'm very well, thank you. Jolly good. Right, Hugh, for a start, tell me a bit more about your farm.
2: Uh, Woodhead is a family farm, originally in partnership with my parents, uh, now my wife, Anna, and uh, we're a a 217-odd hectare farm in total, uh, producing mainly combinable crops. Uh, As a business now, we do a little bit of outside work uh, under contract farming agreements, and so we look after seven other Farms. And Bill, tell
1: me about Preston Hall.
0: So uh, Preston Hall is uh, about half an hour south of Edinburgh, owned by the Callender family, Uh, been in their family for probably over a couple of hundred years now. Predominantly arable unit, 665 hectares in total for the estate, and we're doing just over 500 hectares of arable standard cropping of, of, of combinable crops. Pretty diverse business um, with, with other sort of strings to our bow, residential properties, walled garden for events, uh, and more recently, uh,
1: steading development. Hugh, why did you initially get involved in the Monitor Farm Programme?
2: I think the uh, New Zealand concept, the original New Zealand concept, where a group of uh, farmers get together and uh, trial and explore different techniques and ideas, you know, the, the concept appealed to me greatly. I didn't see myself as a monitor farmer, but uh, was selected in that process. And uh, you know, I think it's a it's a great initiative where everybody can contribute. So whether it's a sort of a tractor driver at one end, or perhaps a you know a scientist or somebody uh, at the other end, and uh, you know, and then the monitor farmer is the guinea pig to to try to trial these ideas. And uh, I think it's a great initiative. How about
0: you, Bill? probably had been off my radar a little bit, Mark, if I'm being honest, um, until um, Peter up at Southland had applied to become a monitor farmer. And then the the concept of of a joint uh, approach between a livestock and an arable farm was hatched. And as a result of that, it, it really sort of piqued my interest as to how we might make that work. But more importantly, I think the, you know, just to follow on from what you were saying there in terms of that community engagement, if you like, that network and, and that sort of ability to draw people together to discuss usually common problems or common solutions or, or common themes um, was really attractive but actually probably more than that the opportunity to, to stick your head above the parapet and um, have people lob things at you as to how how well you're doing I, I guess we all think that we're doing a pretty good job but there's nothing like your peer group to, um, to tell you that uh, you know either yay or nay on that so that opportunity to, to sort of sense test what we were doing, I think constructive because um, it good for any business. Absolutely, yeah, and and I think that that opportunity to, to then engage with other people, we had various things that we were looking at um, from an arable perspective, um, and really important. But I, I don't know how you find it, you, but the that whole concept of having the
2: livestock and the arable units together. I think it's been interesting to see the journey, the evolution of the monitor farm process, because when we started, it was a fairly new concept to Scotland. And, uh, you know, I think in some ways they were maybe trying to make the church a little too broad. It was a Lothian and Borders monitor farm thing. Whereas I think as, as it evolved to the project you were involved with, it was perhaps, you know, slightly more focused to, to, to the area. And uh, I think perhaps, you, you know, the example that you had with the type of the livestock unit made it a more meaningful
1: experience. How did that actually work Bill?
0: I suppose initially what we were doing was we, we we looked at the potential to see how collaborative the two units could be so from a historical point of view the two farms had already um, actually had at one time been part and parcel of the same estate uh, owned by by two uh, separate members of, of the calendar family and we always did some contracting up at Stockland doing some spring barley and, and stuff up there. And we had already been sort of sharing a little bit of labour across the divide. So we had a bit of help from Sockland staff during harvest time. So the first bit was to sort of maybe explore that a little bit more as to how that collaboration could perhaps be probably formalised a little bit, but also extended. Uh, And then I guess the, the next step of that was actually to start thinking about the potential, for example, to reintroduce livestock back into an arable rotation but without actually owning those livestock, but using expertise from Sochland. So that was the basis of that collective part. But then the, the two farms also ran their own individual programs, I guess, of, of, of specifically arable and livestock uh, interests.
1: Your own farm, Woodhead Farm, Hugh, what environmental features do you manage there?
2: Uh, we've participated for well, nearly 30 years now in a variety of agri-environment schemes We're currently in the AICS scheme, Agri-Environment Climate Change Scheme. We've had a bit of succession in terms of these agri-environment schemes. So before the ACE scheme, we were involved in the Rural Stewardship Scheme and then the Countryside Premium Scheme prior to that. You know, I've often reflected on this that in my father's uh, era, he was paid uh, government money grants for improving drainage, for taking out hedges, enlarging fields, that sort of thing. And there was a bit of an irony when we were sort of starting then at that stage to be funded to put them back in again. And I guess that uh, shows the impact that government policy has over agriculture.
1: When you're experimenting like this, Bill, how much do you need to stay flexible?
0: Oh, absolutely critical. I'm sure you would agree with that, that the prescription and, and the ability to sort of move things around and, and, and look at new techniques and look at new opportunities, I think, is, is is a vital part of it. You know, you, I, I like you, um, you know, we've been right the way through the countryside premium scheme, rural stewardship scheme, um, land managers options, which was the, the sort of third incarnation of that. And, and we're also now in the agri-environment climate change scheme. And and the flexibility of, that that gives, I suppose the, the agri-environment schemes are slightly less flexible because it's, it's very prescriptive. I personally, and I, I don't know what you think, Hugh, but I personally thought that, that when we lost the land managers' options,
2: that was a great loss. And I, you know, that that abroad, you know, that, the, the options list that meant far more people could participate at a lower level struck me as a very good concept. And for those that wanted to go the stage further, you had these uh, more prescriptive uh, schemes. And some of the prescriptions were just so inflexible that we're now learning, having participated in them for a for a fairly long period, that they have actually quite an impact on your business. Uh, to, to quote an example, under the age scheme where you have overwinter stubbles followed by either green manures or spring cropping, spring cultivation of land is, is almost devastating for the crop yields. And you know, I think we've got to be very careful with replacements to these schemes that they don't impact on the core business
0: i agree with you on the cultivation side having said that i think the that ag, that uh, overwinter struggles in green manure we, we've actually found to be quite successful here anyway in helping the sort of soil structure but just to drop back to that that lmo uh, land managers options thing just to close that one off the beauty of that was that you you did not have to sort of compete with anybody else to be able to be involved with that and that's i think where that inflexibility of of the other larger schemes comes in where You know, we're very fortunate on on our uh, estate here that we've got a huge amount of biodiversity already here. So actually to deliver a a meaningful agri-environment scheme, which is uh, points-driven,
2: is actually very easy for us. There's a great irony, isn't there, Bill? Because the the farms that were most bereft of diversity were the ones that found it harder to participate in agri-environment schemes. And yet the ones that had the greater levels of diversity could get access to these schemes more readily. And I think that needs to be looked at going forward. Yeah. I, th- I think the other thing that's really important to say about all these agri environment schemes is that I think Scottish agriculture has got a really good story to tell currently. There's an element of farmer bashing in the whole environmental debate that agriculture is in some way eco terrorists and what we do is terrible. And while undoubtedly there are problems that are as yet unresolved, there's an awful lot of good things that have happened in the last 10, 15 years in agriculture. You know, the, the kilometers of hedges that have been planted, the acres of trees, the margins that have been established. And I think it would be really nice to improve communication with, with, you know, with the general public. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I'm quite supportive of an organization called LEAF, because they're quite good at that communication role, the messenger role.
1: How You both said in different ways at the beginning of this that, you know, one of the attractions for you was, was working with a different bunch of people, you know, that you were able to t- you know, talk to the scientists, talk to you know, developers, talk to be- different producers, that kind of thing. Neither of you, however, mentioned members of the public. Is, 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 there, is there any system within the monitor scheme that actually includes them so that they can take the message back out?
0: It's maybe not within the, the agri-environment scheme, but for example, in things like uh, the leaf uh, linking environment and farming um, groups, for example, f- Open Farm Sunday, things like that, where you can actually welcome people onto the farm and actually start that education process. Probably people would think as a bit of a Luddite on, on social media, but although I'm actually quite sort of, I think, reasonably engaged with it. And we're finding that uh, a local Pathhead WhatsApp group, for example, or Pathhead Facebook page is actually quite a good way for us to start to talk about these things. And we've also started to think about, you know, putting signs up on our uh, agri-environment areas. Where the, the, the public tend to walk probably to degrees degree sometimes maybe where they shouldn't, primarily because they're not actually aware of what's, what, what it is they're walking on sometimes. And uh, while a grass margin around the field might look like an ideal place to have a walk, because it's in a scheme and we're trying to develop biodiversity in that area, those two aren't necessarily compatible, particularly if there's sort of dogs running about and whatnot. So I, I think it's a very fair point, Mark, that education element. And Hugh and I actually had a talk about this the other day. That education element of it
2: is vital. Yeah, I mean, I, I, as a business, we've been a leaf demonstration farm since 2004 and we've quite a lot of visits to interested parties. we participated in a couple of open farm Sundays. and um, But you know, I have to accept as an industry that we're not necessarily good communicators. And, you know, one of the reasons I am supportive of Leap is they are trying to address that PR part of agriculture, disseminating what I think is generally a good story to a wider audience. And I think, you know, we're all told we should engage more with our consumers. But when you produce commodities, it's slightly harder to do that. And you know, I think a lot of producers probably don't see you know their customers needing to know much more about their business, but uh, you know I don't think that's the case. I think there is a really great appetite that some of the farming shows that we're seeing on the television now have demonstrated that there is an interest in what's actually happening.
1: There is a definite sense at the moment you know that farming's being painted as a problem. How do you redraw that narrative? how do you how do you reconstruct it so you see actually farming's part of the solution?
2: I always think that you know if if if, if like airline companies as an example, if they can be carbon neutral by 2045 or 2050, surely to goodness, agriculture's got a chance. You know, we're an industry that actually sequestrates carbon. And, and so this notion, a 300 tonne lump of metal flying through the sky, burning chunks of fossil fuel that's taken a, a heap of carbon to get to the runway in the first place, is going to be more environmentally sustainable than an agricultural business. I just think it shows how we've actually got it wrong as an industry, that we need to be part of the solution and more engaged with our customers with the general public to you know to explain how we can be part of the solution and we're really definitely not part of the problem.
1: What are you doing differently now, Bill, that you weren't doing before the monitor farm program?
2: We've been sort of involved in
0: various agri-environment projects. So so that um you know that that's probably been enhanced since we went down the monitor farm route. I think one or two of the things that we've changed are for example, we're using we're using cover crops much more extensively during the, the autumn and winter. Um, it's a bit of a challenge from a time perspective to get these uh, crops established well because of, of the lateness of harvest up, up here. But that probably, in a sustainable way, would be avoiding bare soil where we possibly can. It, it's not always possible. Uh, and that, for example, helps to soak up excess nitrogen that might be left behind by a residual crop. It might also help us to reduce our carbon loss by not ploughing, for example. Um, so a number of things like that, that, that we're sort of thinking, I guess we're thinking soil health a lot more than we did before. We, we were always very keen to make sure that our, um, for example, our, our sort of nutrient indices, et cetera, were, were where they should be. But I think it's so much more than that. It's it's all about soil structure, organic matter, biodiversity within the soil, microbial activity and things like that. So. We probably brought our focus a little bit more to what's under our feet, rather than to what's above the ground. Um, and, and I think, from a sustainable point of view, going forward, that's absolutely critical.
2: Same question to you, Hugh. We've always taken a, a, the view that we're land managers, as opposed to out-and-out, out, you know, food producers. And uh, what we're trying to do is produce our food in a more sustainable way. And we're trying to use influences so you know if you look at the organic sector for example some of the techniques they use in managing their soil is excellent and in mainstream agriculture we've got to look at their techniques and employ them and i think that things are always evolving and changing and you know we're, we're far more aware of issues that perhaps we weren't previously aware of so uh, by that i mean point source pollution about you know we've we put various things in place you know, we've become aware of things over the years that we're now trying to address. So, for example, we now fill our spraying machine in a covered, bonded uh, area. Uh, all our fertilizer tanks are in buns. I think I think there is a direction of travel within the industry, which is very positive, and I think that is the first step.
1: In the monitor farm project, you know, and and all the sort of associated stuff it goes with, has it drawn you into other environmental projects? We've been
0: involved in um, a pollinator scheme um, and, I, and I guess that's sort of allied to the agri-environment scheme of, of trying to uh, improve the the quality of, of, of some of the schemes that we've been involved in. Um, Nectar producing plants, for example, was was not something that was on the agenda of the early beetle bank type margins that we used to use, for example. And we've been involved in a pollinator project for the last three years of actually starting to measure some of the benefits of these um, nectar-rich margins in terms of the number of, of insects and particularly bees, et cetera, that are there. And I guess beyond that, as Hugh rightly points out, you know we've we become more focused on making sure that what we do is as environmentally sensitive as possible. So rather than involved in, in individual schemes and separate schemes, it's more of a mindset thing, I think, where you start to consider the impact more than, than we perhaps did before of, of what we're doing from a beneficial point of view anyway from, from the agro-environment margins etc.
2: We, we're certainly looking at sort of what we might describe as environmental um, sustainable intensification so what we do is we look at areas of the farm that are less productive and we say well maybe those areas are better put into sort of an agro-environment scheme maybe they should be managed for diversity for water quality And the bits in the middle of the field, if we're producing crops in them, well, let's produce them as well as we can so that our carbon emissions per tonne of production is lower. And, uh, you know, it's one of the best ways to improve carbon emissions is to become a much more efficient business.
1: By becoming a much more efficient business, as you've been, the pair of you have been trying to do over the years, how has it affected your bottom line
2: the participation in the agro-environment schemes that we've done now over, well, 25-plus years has actually increased our average yield because what we've done is we've identified areas that are less productive, put them into some form of positive management that's attracted a level of support and then concentrated our production on the centre of the fields. And so when you then look at carbon emissions per tonne of production, I think our emissions are going down and I think we're on a journey. I think we can still improve I think we're constantly striving to improve. You know, I think we're making good steps.
0: I don't disagree with any of that at all. And I, I, you know, I, I suppose if you can go back to the old set-aside scheme uh, years ago. We, we tended to put the, mo- the least productive areas into set-aside, and that that in theory increased our bottom line. Uh, the difficulty is, of course, the more ground an area you take out of production, if you maintain the current level of machinery and, and men and, and, and staff, etc., you know, your fixed costs actually then start to go up instead of instead of being as efficient potentially, but we, I guess one of the practices of, of switching away from, from an all-ploughing situation to a more minimal cultivation or, or non-inversion tillage situation, I would say probably we, we saw a little bit of a dip in our bottom line at one time, um, but as, as we progressed on that and got better at it, and actually the, the soil is now starting to benefit, the ability to sort of spatially apply pr- nutrients, for example, the ability to to actually be more specific and more, Analytical, if you like, about what's happening within the field has, has has been a huge. It's it's attention to detail,
2: isn't it, Bill? I mean, we've got. Yeah, it is exactly that. You know, if you can measure it, you can manage it, and we, we're able to manage things very precisely. That we don't just produce yield maps, as an example, we can produce profit maps, and by that we can look at areas of the farm that are underperforming, and we can then ask questions. You know, why is that underperformance? Is it so physical? Is it so chemical? Is it land that's inappropriate for that type of production, and therefore should we consider alternatives?
1: This kind of attention to detail, Phil. You I mean what you pair are talking about? You have chosen to do this to a certain extent. How many years do you think it's going to be before this becomes more or less mandatory for Scottish farmers?
0: It'll be interesting to see, actually, Mark. If to be honest with you, I mean, I think there, there's already a requirement within the quality assurance schemes that we're involved with to be more specific about our. Our treatment, for example, of our nutrient balances, uh, etc. We've got phosphate regulations, I think, looming on the horizon um, by this end of it, and, and and that will require us, I'm sure, to be more specific about what we do on, on a balanced basis. But I would encourage anybody who is in mainstream production, if they're not already doing it, to start looking very carefully at the at um, their imbalances and their offtakes and that, and how they do things, you know.
2: It's definitely evolution, not revolution. And I think it's going to become more mainstream going forward. I think even banks are going to insist that the businesses they lend to do certain steps towards the environment. So it's gradually coming in. If you wind the clock back 25 years ago and I had conservation advisors coming onto the farm talking about biodiversity, that was double Dutch to me 25 years ago. Ask any producer today about biodiversity and they'll know exactly what you're talking about. And I think that that progress is going to keep marching and I think that it's definitely going to be mainstream. I think there's a general acceptance within the industry now that that is a direction of travel and that the fine details of it are clearly to be tweaked, but you know, I think most businesses will accept they're having to up their environmental responsibility.
0: Do you not think, Hugh, that that's also one of the benefits of the Monitor Farm programme, for example? So. That ability to deliver messages, that knowledge transfer, for example, that that goes on within, you know, within each community group within within a monitor farm. Never mind that the management group, or even even if there's a benchmarking group beside it, for example, I, I think that's where, you know, some of the benefits have come because people can actually look at what other people are doing, and, and take them home and, and actually start to implement them themselves, or, or look at the look at the output from the reports from the, the monitor farm programs, etc
2: farmers seem to receive information better from other farmers. Yeah, no, no question about it.
0: Just to go back to that question about mandatory, I think the, the key here is to make people understand what the benefits to them are of, of things, of, of that attention to detail and perhaps of that sort of more specific approach. There will be some things that will come in that will require us to change up our practices and look at certain things. But the key to it for me is to make sure that everybody is aware of the benefits of doing it. People tend not to react too well to the stick approach, but actually, the carrot approach, I
2: couldn't agree more. They really that.
0: relate to, you know.
2: The carrot rather than the stick is always a better initiative. And I think the industry has demonstrated historically how well it responds uh, to, to initiatives. And, and the areas to focus on is very much on what I call the win wins. So mm. we know as arable uh, uh, cereal producers that we've got uh, LERAPs, local environmental risk assessments. And so if you put a margin in between, the area of production and the water course then straight away there's a win isn't there you know you've got compliance which you're obliged to do anyway uh, and yet you can you can deliver benefit to your crop as well because of beneficial species within the margins
1: by and large we've been talking about current and past initiatives is there anything in the offing queue? what used
2: to be scottish natural heritage nature scotland now is proposing a replacement scheme a replacement agro environment and it's far more an outcome-based approach. And they're currently going through a process of setting up a pilot project uh, that I think is running in five regions throughout Scotland, but there is one that's focusing on, uh, within Lothian, which focuses far more on the arable sector. It's a sector that's not been included in other works in other uh, devolved parts of the UK. And you know most of the projects that have happened in the past have generally favored areas which have much more natural or semi-natural habitats. So it's really interesting to look at uh, you know, the more intensively produced areas and how they could uh, benefit from more uh, outcome-based agro-environment schemes going forward.
1: And what are the outcomes thereafter? Well, they're looking at a
2: range of things, you know, their targets obviously thinking about things like carbon sequestration, water quality, biodiversity, soil quality, maintaining designated areas, uh, definitely looking at innovation and pollinators uh, and and perhaps even help for rural communities, you know, looking at perhaps more the social aspect of managing the environment.
0: Are you happy, Hugh, that that outcome-based approach is, is going to be
2: objective enough? It depends
0: who sets those criteria, I suppose, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, the, the the big worry about outcome based approaches, then it's subjective, isn't it? So, yeah. um, the principle of I am going to pay you more if you've got more wildflowers in your meadow than I've got in my meadow. Um, you know, potentially it's a route for conflict, and at some point, from the department is going to have to come out and make a judgment. You know, they're talking about being self assessing, and I I have to, I, you know, I think the outcomes based approach is laudable. I think you know, great for the ambition. But they need to be really careful, like a lot of these very prescriptive you know, higher-level stewardship schemes that they've participated in in the past, you know, the, the, you know, the A-Scheme, the RSS or the CPS before it, it takes in a massive amount of time and it dilutes the support that comes to the farm gate, to my side of the farm gate. And I think that a model based on the old LMOs, the land managers' options, is probably a better way to address it. But, you know,
1: you have to admire the ambition. Hugh and Bill, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much for your time today. No problems.
2: Yeah, you're more than welcome. I'm,
0: I'm glad to be able to share some of the stuff that we've done over the years.
1: Yeah, no, it's an, it's intriguing stuff. Uh, Hugh Broad and Bill Gray there. And thank you very much for listening to this. Uh, I hope you found it useful. I'm Mark Stephen, and we will have more uh, from Quality Meat Scotland next week.
0: Thank you for listening to the Quality Meat Scotland podcast. For news and to listen back to previous episodes of the podcast, visit qmscotland.co.uk. For Scotch beef, Scotch lamb and specially selected pork recipe videos and inspiration, visit www.scotchkitchen.com
2: or follow Scotch Kitchen on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.